Welcome, everyone, to the inaugural episode of the Harry Potter Book Club. I'm Trevor. I'm Matt. I'm Sylvia. I'm Crystal. I'm Alex. And I'm Vera. And we are basically just a bunch of friends who really love Harry Potter. Uh, this book club has been in our imaginations for quite a while. Uh, many of our friendships have been forged over conversations about the Harry Potter canon, and we simply decided it was high time that we got all together and worked slowly but surely through the entire arc of the story. Well, guys, the first thing we have to do is decide how this book club is actually going to be run and organized. Um, so I'm curious, what are you guys hoping to get out of our time together? Well, I'd really like to do some uh, in-depth character analysis and uh, maybe even study some of the magical creatures and what they stand for, things like that. Um, and also just looking across the whole Harry Potter canon and picking out themes and literary devices and things like that. Just real nerdy stuff. <laughs> I'd even like to get into, uh, since Harry Potter, we've grown up with it. It's been in our lives for a long time. Um, I'd like to get into more... Uh, you know, how it's changed, I mean, even socially, you know, like how we interact with one another and just different, I don't, different things, different Harry Potter themes, you know, that just is woven into the fabric of our culture today. I think that'd be interesting. I, I like how you said canon earlier. And to me, I'm really interested in exploring you know, Harry Potter as literature, as, as something that is, is sort of part of the know, Western tradition now of literature um, and how... Uh, both fantasy as a genre has been changed by it and how it's how it borrowed from and developed further um, various fantasy themes and love to just explore that and then sort of taking from that some of the maybe philosophical um, ethical and other other issues we can explore by examining these I mean really at this point I think classic books yeah yeah one of the things that I think draws me repeatedly to Harry Potter and it's your wife who forced <laughs> <laughs> is marrying Sylvia. Yes, that was a big part of it. Um, but it was also the fact that this genre has a capacity. This sort of epic fantasy literature has a capacity to touch all of life. Mm -hmm. And so, as we talk through these seven books, eight if we count Cursed Child. Um, Pretty much everything is on the table. Every part of who we are uh, and our, our culture and even our global history mm -hmm. kind of comes on the table. And I think uh, with the philosophical uh, angle, I, I really want to see how the Harry Potter narrative and its characters hold up a mirror to us, to our society, and to historical trends that we've seen uh, emerging, not only in the past, but also in the present. Um, I think some of the big themes of the book um, allow us to do that. I'm interested to hear what you all have to say about that as we go on. Um, in terms of organizing our time together, um, we need to decide how often we're going to do this. Um, does once a month sound good to you guys? Yeah. I think that's plenty flexible. Yeah. Maybe at the end of our time together, trying to figure out a date the next month that works yeah. together. What about how quickly we want to move? We've only done one chapter for uh, this meeting, uh, and I don't know about you guys, but it took me a long time to read as intensively as I wanted to. 
Um, and, and we need to kind of feel out maybe how, how long it takes us to discuss a chapter. Mm-hmm. But do you have any initial thoughts about how, how many at a time you think we should if we could take? make it through in a year or less for book one. I feel like taking more than a year on book one, to me, seems long. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. 17 chapters. I do like that the idea of taking it slow, though, because... We have no idea where the discussion's going to end up. Right. I mean, I, I've had some ideas thinking about book one because, in light of things that I've learned from later later books that, um, I, don't, I don't know if they could be an episode in itself, you know. Um, I, would, I would sort of see us just taking, taking our time, and when we, when we feel like we're done with the chapter, then we move on, yeah. um, because there's just so many ways we can go. And if we're having fun and it's interesting, then why feel pressure? You know? Yeah. I do think it's a good idea, though, to come prepared with at least one or two chapters in mind that we're going to discuss. And if we don't get there or if we do, then we feel good about the time that we've spent on it and have studied it and have something good to say about it. Fortunately, we all live within about six minutes of each other. (laughs) And if we need to extend a discussion... Um, to the next evening, I'm sure Alex would be willing to oh, yeah. host a dinner. No, yeah. just, oh, you not bet, volunteering you, bet. you or anything. No, that sounds great. But um, you know, there's no rule that says we can't get together, uh, have More than continued time. discussion, yeah. uh, and maybe release it as a podcast. Um, yeah, uh, I feel a, like, a little later down the line. Yeah, I feel like more than three chapters is a lot. Just because so much happens, mm-hmm. and that's like I don't know, probably you know a good forty some pages. So cool. if we're gonna really be pulling themes out, then I feel like we shouldn't do more than three at a time. Definitely. I think book one will move the slowest, but yeah. we'll have the luxury of like jumping forward to like, oh, remember what this foreshadows in right. Goblet of Fire. Then when we get to Goblet of Fire, we can go back and reference it, but like. Book one might be the slowest and I the most fun because right. we're getting to foreshadow everything that's coming. <laughs> right. And so it'll also keep it interesting because we're getting to reference all the other books and as we're talking about book one. So I'm, I'm okay with that. I think ultimately we should do what we're most interested in and passionate about and what we're going to enjoy the most. And then that's our niche. Yeah. But yeah. 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 And to anybody listening via the podcast, we hope that what interests us will also interest you. Yeah. <laughs> we, we think the Harry Potter books are absolutely fascinating, and I am personally really interested in what these other Harry Potter nerds have to say as they've spent a good portion of their lives pouring over the books, uh, just like I have. Well, with butterbeer in one hand and coffee in another, uh, let's dig in to Chapter 1, uh, The Boy Who Lived. Uh, Rowling begins... This story on October 31st, 1981, with these words. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. We're one line into the Harry Potter adventure, and already, I I think for a lot of us, our imaginations are captured. I'd love to hear your responses to just the first line. Um, or, or maybe the, the literary tone of the first chapter as a whole. We've been talking a lot about this, so I'm going to jump in. Because um, 
she does, I, I just think Rowling does certain things in chapter one that she doesn't do really ever again, or that um, I haven't noticed. So, like, thank you very much. Um, that little kind of quippy, playful um, intro, it just, it reminds me of, when I think of The Lord of the Rings, how The Hobbit is written from just a more childish, playful, accessible way, and then the other books get more serious, and I just think there's this light entertaining childish imaginative tone to this and a few other lines in chapter one that I tagged um like she has on page two when Mr. and Mrs. Dursley woke up on the dull gray morning our story starts like she references here's where our story starts like that's not something she does again um no yeah it, it breaks the what is it that fourth wall mm -hmm. the wall with the audience it's it's consciously saying, I am a narrator weaving a tale, and you are a reader who's being invited into it. And I, I do think that the use of second person, like even the last paragraph, um, a breeze ruffled the neat hedges of Privet Drive, which lay silent and tidy under the inky sky, the very last place you would expect astonishing things to happen. Uh, to actually engage the reader that way, um, I think brings us in in a really exciting way and I think you're right I don't know of any other place in the Harry Potter canon where Rowling addresses us in quite this way and I do agree that it's a really effective way to start the story to, to begin um, churning that imagination with these sort of whimsical ways of talking And I think also, just in that first sentence, you learn so much about the Dursleys. All right, it's even like the thank you very much, it's almost like Petunia is talking. She's so snooty <laughs> and, you know, holier than thou, and it's just, it's lovely. Like, it's a really quick character representation. Um, but I just feel like we learn so much about them just in that tiny little intro. Yeah, the first couple of pages are... Dursley-centric, right? for sure. We, we learn things about the Dursleys, or, or we generate impressions about the Dursleys that will impact how we view and interpret them throughout the rest of the story. I'm curious, what, what gets brought out to you, whether explicitly or sort of implicitly under the surface as, as you worked through that material on the Dursleys? I was surprised by how anxious the, uh, the impression I got from the Dursleys was that they were very anxious people. They were so concerned with this normalcy, and normal people aren't concerned with being normal. They just are. Um, those that have to be really concerned about being normal have know there's something different about them, um, something that otherwise um, they would have no, nothing to hide. Um, and that, that, so that's something that just pulled me in. Like, why are these people so anxious? What's going on? I sort of, I think it sets you up to know that they have a secret, too. Sort of the same thing you're saying about them being anxious. It's, I'm telling you that I'm perfectly normal. There's nothing going on here. It's almost this facade that you immediately see them set up. And the language, what we were talking about earlier with it being sort of a narrative sort of language, where we see that there's a narrator, she invites us in. It immediately evokes your imagination, too. I think you can almost see this family. You don't know anything about them. It's just 
there you would picture this family that almost have their noses in the air. You can tell that they're sort of mm-hmm. snooty, like you were saying. Yeah. Even from the name, Dursley, just Dursley. Like, that speaks for itself. Yeah, I read an article uh, from Rowling saying that she came up with that name because it was a town she had never visited in England. I believe in Gloucestershire. She said, I never knew anyone like the Dursleys from Dursley, but there was just something about the way the name sounded that felt like it was right. Um, And I think she said that Vernon and Petunia were Vernon and Petunia from the very beginning. They didn't go through different iterations of names. That was just, in her uh, author's imagination, that was, that was who they were, that was what they were from the very beginning. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm just thinking if Frodo was originally Bingo. Lord bingo. of the Rings reference. Yeah, he was Bingo until almost the very end. And then he yeah, which would have been really. Although, tough. if if you think about oh, it, Mr. Bingo, <laughs> I still feel like there are more epic names in Middle Earth than Frodo. Yeah, like but it's, yeah. it's one of those names that at the least, more you think at about, least Frodo the sillier was his it seems. Name-o and uh, else. Well, going back to this idea of the Dursleys' anxiety over being normal, as I was. Reading, that was one of the things that struck me um, that made them normal. Uh, This sentence, the Dursleys had everything they wanted, but they also had a secret, and their greatest fear was that somebody would discover it. I feel like that description, you could insert any human being's name alive, Mm -hmm. and it describes their condition. And so that that led me to think, if the, the Dursleys are so normal... In one sense, they have everything. Uh, in another sense, their life is just filled with banality, triviality, anxiety, uh, and, and insecurity. Um, what, what makes them so easy to hate? We see ourselves in them. Mm-hmm. Makes you sort of, it confronts you with this idea of like, I see these people as snooty and they want to be perceived a certain way. And then you immediately see that within yourself too. Like in what ways do I pretend that I'm completely normal when really I'm over here, I don't know, chewing my nails to be, or some, something we don't like people to know about us. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. I often find that the things I have the least tolerance for in other people are the things that I see in myself. Mm-hmm. And there's almost like this projection of that distaste Uh, it's a whole lot easier to be disgusted by a trait in somebody else than it is to admit that it lives on inside of you. But, I mean, the Dursleys, it seems, they are people who want to be respectable. Uh, I think that that comes through. They they want to be normal. They want to be accepted. They they want to fit in. I think it's interesting, I mean, speaking of just their uh, want, want to be normal, I mean, when just skipping a few heads, a, a, a little bit ahead on page seven, um, they say that you know he's he's trying to remember um, uh, Harry's name and he can't remember and he thinks he knows what it is, but um, you know Petunia says like, "Hey, uh, his name is Harry," and he says, "Nasty common name, if you ask me." So it's just it's really interesting that they're wanting to be normal and be common, and that she'd say a phrase like that. Um, In contrast to his name. Because Vernon was a name originally from from Normandy. It's an Anglo-Saxon. I mean, it's a <laughs> it's a name that was only introduced after the Anglo-Saxon conquest. Yeah. So it has an aristocratic origin, unlike 
Harry. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I like... Here. <laughs> <laughs> and that's his first name, right? It's not his last name. Yeah. Last name... Dursley, like you said, it's a it's a town's name. It's not. It doesn't have an aristocratic connection. Um, and um, Potter is a trade. And Potter is a trade as well. So, th- mm. but the first name is a name you pick. Last name is a name you're given. Yeah. So you can tell he's whoever Mr. Dursley's parents were. They seem to want to associate him with a somewhat more upper class way of being. Yeah. Than they actually were. Don't don't we find though that that is the case again? The, the Dursleys emerge as pictures of us, mm. pictures of modern human beings, except caricatured, uh, almost through a magnifying glass, um, without a filter, so that we actually see the effects of what's going on uh, inside of them and the way it manifests itself in ugly ways. One of the things that struck me is for all of the disdain that everyone universally feels for the Dursleys, they really don't have any extraordinary vices. All of their vices are perfectly ordinary. But Rowling lets us see with with really uh, intense clarity the effects of those ordinary vices as they take people along a trajectory towards judgmentalism, profound insecurity that oscillates into intense pride, which turns into hatred of others, and all of these other things are, are emerging from very ordinary dispositions and character traits that sort of take on a life of their own. I don't know if you're just talking about chapter one, but I mean, definitely they abuse their child, like they abuse Harry. So, I mean, I would say that that is a vice. I mean, like, dark closet, cabinet, under the stairs, no windows, forced to cook for the family, basically a slave. Like, I would say that's an example. Even yes. now, Child abuse, just... not an ordinary <laughs> vice. Not an ordinary, yeah. Well, yeah. More ordinary Maybe. than we'd like to admit. Actually. Now, that's, that's probably true. I guess I would put that under the caricatured thing, because even okay. in the Harry Potter universe... Um, and maybe this takes us into a different part of this first chapter. The the tragedies that sort of set up Harry's childhood are not depicted in these intensely dramatic ways. Uh, and maybe we, we need to talk about that more in chapter two, but even the death of his parents. I mean, we're beginning a... What begins a, a children's story, written as we said with whimsy and fun and imagination, with the murder of an infant's two parents and him being left exposed to sleep on a doorstep. Uh, but there's there's something in in Rowling's universe that seems to take those tragic instances and maybe downplay the drama for the sake of the narrative, at least early on. Um, I think there's something about the orphaned character that is like a literary device in and of itself because there's so much potential. You come from nothing and then you make something of yourself. I have no one. I don't know who I am. And that's such, that's something that we all struggle with as humans 
you know, even with parents, is that I don't know who I am, and I don't know where I came from, and I don't know what makes me who I am. And so the orphan character is just such a, like I said, like a literary device to use mm -hmm. to to bring this world into life, because he really doesn't know who he is, and it, his parents are a part of that, but he doesn't know that he's a wizard. He doesn't know that he has these powers, and that comes from him not having anybody tell him who he is. And so he's got to be an orphan, you know, for any of this to, to begin. It, it also puts sort of a, a blank slate mm -hmm. in the narrative so that the reader is limited by the self-consciousness of the main character. Right. We don't know what Harry doesn't know, right. which means that as he grows up, as he's discovering these things, we discover them with him, and it actually becomes an intensely um, evocative um, and, I think, overall successful literary device mm -hmm. uh, to begin with sort of the ignorant orphan yeah. who doesn't know uh, their past or their destiny, and that allows us to sort of tiptoe into the wizarding world mm -hmm. with him. Yeah, like if it was from Dumbledore's perspective, chapter one, you know, we'd know so much more. Wouldn't be nearly <laughs> as fun to read because you just have everything at the beginning. Well, I know you you had mentioned the rewrites. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, I just, I thought it was interesting because this is the first time I'd really focused on chapter one after hearing an interview um, that Rowling had 15 rewrites of chapter one. And every single time she rewrote it because she gave too much away in the chapter. And so um, with that, like one of my favorite things to look for is foreshadowing in each book of what's, oh, this is pointing to this, or this is referencing this. So I I found it interesting to think through what foreshadowing there is, but she, to see she also does really limit it because every single rewrite, she took more away. Um, apparently in the beginning, I mean, she was talking about the Muggleborn and, and just things like that, that how that's all gonna come to light later, but I wonder, are there any traces of that um, that anybody sees? I mean, we get the reference to muggles, we get, but I, I really think she does a good job of limiting what we find out. We get the put-outer, which comes back in book seven. Right. We get Sirius Black, mm -hmm. a young Sirius Black, who really is actually the same age as Harry's parents, so he's not that young, but Hagrid is like 51 at this point, so he's young compared to Hagrid. As, I mean, I'm trying to think of what other foreshadowing yeah. I saw. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. It seems like Rowling did eventually strike the balance of not giving things away, but writing the first chapter with such a deft hand that those who have read the canon come back and see things that they never saw before. Uh now I want to be I want to pick my words carefully here, but it's almost biblical in nature, um, or like reading a, a well-crafted uh, mystery, uh, that um, there are things that you miss in the early parts of the story the first time through. But once you know and have internalized the whole narrative, you go back and you say, "How could how could I have missed that before? I missed it, and I I didn't even know that I missed it." So yeah, I think Sylvia's question is a great one. What uh, what threads do you see emerging in chapter one uh, that 
get tugged on later on in the story? What themes emerging? What what character traits? One of my one of the things I love about um, chapter one is that it it immediately establishes um, I think this prejudice this idea of prejudice. Um, so just like we see in book seven with M Muggleborns being you know, rounded up basically, here we see the opposite of that with the Dursleys where they see Harry as Harry and then also. James and Lily as these people that they don't want to be associated with. They immediately you know, strike them as, this makes me not normal, I don't want anything to do with this. So I think one of the threads that you can follow is they almost foil one another, mm -hmm. um, like the chapter one and chapter seven, especially I think of chapter, or book seven rather, um, when in The Dark Lord Ascending, the first chapter, um, Voldemort is saying to Bellatrix Lestrange, he's saying that Tonks, Tonks is like the, what am I trying to get out here? Um, she's the, the black sheep sort of of the family that these, they're, he's telling her to like prune their family tree essentially to cut out any muggle-borns that are, any muggles that are in their family tree. And here we see like in, in chapter, or maybe it's a later chapter in book one where, um, Vernon is saying to Harry, like, we promised we were going to stamp that out of you as soon as we took you in. So it's like he, t he takes them in with this idea, I'm going to stamp this out of you. So there's just this whole prejudice throughout the entire series. Um, and it goes both ways. It's mm -hmm. not just wizards with muggles. It's also muggles with this idea of wizards. Mm -hmm. It scares them. And even before that sort of dramatic outburst from Vernon, I think you're right that it's later on either chapter two or chapter three probably, um, it's all through chapter one, but with subtlety. Uh, Vernon's thoughts about the people in colorful robes that he passes on the street. Uh, this, this statement on page nine, Albus Dumbledore didn't seem to realize that he had just arrived in the street where everything from his name to his boots was unwelcome. That was the sentence where I was like, oh my goodness. She is, she is, she's introducing this theme of exclusion, of otherness, and of the fear associated with those who do not uh, resemble oneself already in, in this first chapter. But she's doing it in a way that you're like, this, this, is, this is completely normal. Like, this is a part of human experience. And maybe we even identify with Vernon in his fear of the other with a name that doesn't sound like ours, dressed in ways that we don't understand or identify with. And we think, yeah, if I pass somebody wearing high-heeled boots and a colorful <laughs> robe, uh, whispering about uh, my nephew, I think, uh, we, might, we might be sort of put out as well. I have to say, uh, the high-heeled, buckled boots are not how I picture Albus Dumbledore. <laughs> like this, and and it, it does remind me of the first movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, that first scene on Privet Drive, I'm always like, what are they wearing? This is not how you know, we, we picture them. I guess the movies have a lot to do with that. But that was a detail that I did not remember was the boots. The half-moon spectacles, you yes. know, are... 
are key. Uh, but the high heel buckle boots, those, those are unique. Mm. I think names are a key, like Voldemort. We get his name, mm -hmm. French, Stealer of Death. That's a big, you know, give like a big clue as to what Voldemort is, who he is. I thought it was Flight from Death. Mm -hmm. I thought Blah. it was Conqueror of Death. Did you get all of them? We'll need to look that up. And yeah, get, that get seems that. important. We, we know it's something. I'm so embarrassed. I'm major, sure. But I know I was taking. I think actually flying and think theft are related. Yes. And oh, maybe okay. similar words in French because. You don't generally stick around when you steal something? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, think it's, I think it's an important distinction to draw <laughs> because I'm sure he views himself as a stealer of death. He's kind of in charge of all the lives around him. But he is most afraid of death yeah. of all the characters that we meet because mm -hmm. he has all of these, you know, horcruxes, obviously, yeah. all of these um, things set in place so that he won't have to experience what he gives to everyone else. And what's fascinating is that with chapter one and the etymology of Voldemort's name, you you do you get the fundamental fear that is driving him and really the whole narrative because mm -hmm. Voldemort's fear and the violence that emerges because of it sets up the plot in chapter one with the the murder at Godric's Hollow and it continues the conflict on throughout book seven. I I know the first time I ever read through um, the the stories. It took me many books before I realized what what you just said and what Voldemort's name reveals. Yeah. That, oh my gosh, everything comes down to escaping death through grabbing hold of life in whatever form uh, it can be found. Do we have a verdict on the French yes. meaning so of Yes, so it can mean both because voler um, is the verb to steal. So, I mean, I think it... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to say it could have both meanings, but when I Googled it, it looks like the official, maybe what Rowling would say, this is flight of death, so you were right, absolutely right on that. I was just doing my own interpretation. Well, that's cool, though. I mean, maybe Voldemort chose it for himself because it flight means of thief of death, but ironically, it fits him better than he thinks. What I love about the name, though, is that if you're just a kid who doesn't know French, mm -hmm. It's just a creepy name. Yeah. Mm. Like, it's just a great name. Yeah. I also, uh, I love how uh, Rowling introduces us to Voldemort. Um, it begins um, with a uh, Mr. Dursley bumping into a man on the street in a violet cloak, almost knocking him down, and the man saying, Don't be sorry, my dear sir, for nothing could upset me today. Rejoice, for you know who has gone at last. Even muggles like yourself should be celebrating this happy, happy day. And I'm thinking, well, we don't know who you know who is. <laughs> Which increases sort of the narrative tension. It's one more way that Rowling really creatively draws us in. But she's also introducing us sort of by immersion into the vocabulary of the That's wizarding world. Yeah. Who is you know who? We, we don't know. He's gone. He must be bad because his name's taboo. 
So we get all of these ideas about him uh, even before we're formally introduced. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the, the term muggle, we're sort of thrown right in. We're not given a definition until later on when Harry's confronted with the word for the first time. I, I Something just occurred to me, and I wonder what you guys think about this. Um, on page 11, when um, Professor McGonagall is calling Voldemort, you know who... And Dumbledore, you know, pulls what he always pulls, which is, don't call him you-know-who, call him Bias. But he says his proper name, Voldemort. But whenever he encounters Voldemort, he calls him Tom, because Mm -hmm. that's his actual proper name. Mm. So I just, I wonder if that was one of her rewrites, where she was like, I can't give that much away, because then we don't find out who he is until, you know, much later. Um... But Dumbledore always has that upper hand on on Voldemort by knowing who he is and not, you know, letting this Dark Lord facade really, mm-hmm. really um, bother him or, or let him, you know. Well, it, it's a very Dumbledorean thing. I, I really like that contrast that you pull up that when he addresses Voldemort, he never, he never says Voldemort. No. He gives people almost, he challenges people with what he knows they need at the moment. Professor McGonagall needs to address you-know-who as Voldemort because he is the Dark Lord. Yeah. And she has been living in danger and in fear. But Tom Riddle needs to be confronted by the fact that he is not really the Dark Lord that he thinks he is, that he's sort of um, created for himself. And Dumbledore is maybe the only person both powerful and courageous enough to hold up the mirror to Tom Riddle and say, remember who you actually are. And also old enough, because yeah. he was around <laughs> when Tom was around. I knew you way back yeah. then, Tom. <laughs> when you were in short pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's a great point. I love, I had tagged that for the same reason. I was like, why not Tom? Yeah. But um, they, so then he him. says, he says, I have never seen any reason to be frightened of saying Voldemort's name. And I'm like, until in book seven, when they jinx it, and it actually <laughs> does become dangerous. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think it's cool that... It actually does become a liability down the road, but but isn't that why? Um, isn't that why they jinx it in the seventh book? Because that's how it had been when the first time he came to power. Isn't that why they call him? You know who? Because it was. I thought it was fear. Is it? Was it? I it was jinxed fear too. I don't know that it was ever jinxed before. Really? And I think yeah. they jinx it later on because they know the only people who don't say you know who out of fear are those who oppose him. Yeah. Yeah, so it all it all comes back together. <laughs> so the scar that was another foreshadowing. Yes, when Dumbledore's like mm. scars can be pretty important, mm-hmm. actually. But then it's like a magician's sleight of hand. I have a scar just above my knee. It's right. a perfect map of the London Underground, and then we're left chuckling and not thinking. Oh, wow, that was like an epic line. Or like, what oh, happened yeah. to your knee, man? Yeah, in the London Underground. <laughs> yeah, seriously. That's so Dumbledore. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, and I, I feel like that's his power, too, is that he he hides these, mm-hmm. you know, incredibly insightful and, you know, how, how can you possibly know this much about the world behind these, like, oh, I'm a doddering old fool sort mm-hmm. of whimsical comments <laughs> to keep us from being terrified yeah. with how much he knows. Yeah. It, it's... Almost uh, this grandfatherly way of keeping people comfortable yeah. when he knows they may not be able to handle it all. I mean, right. 
Professor McGonagall is on the as close to breaking down as we ever see Professor McGonagall get. And Dumbledore is sort of talking to her, but acting distracted, pulling apart uh, lemon drop candies. Uh, he throws in, you know, these humorous little uh, phrases every now and then, almost as a way to keep the people around him at ease. Mm-hmm. It, it seems to be this mantle, this obligation that he takes on himself. And I do think that reveals something about the way Dumbledore sees himself, and it it's consistent throughout the books as well. One of the questions I wanted to ask you guys is, in our introduction to Dumbledore, what do we learn about him? We've sort of already uh, tiptoed uh, into this territory. Lemon drops are a muggle candy. Mm-hmm. He's a wizard, and he's not eating wizard candy. Like, right there, that is huge about his character, because we've already seen there's this separation between the two worlds. Yeah. Not like there aren't plenty of lemon wizard candies to choose from. I think we get the impression, too, of how wise he is and how respected and revered in the wizarding world. And just when McGonagall says, you know, Voldemort's the only, or Dumbledore's the only one Voldemort ever feared. So I think that immediately sets you up to know, too, that he's going to play an important role in the defeat of Voldemort. To me, he um, he instantly reminded me of Gandalf's role in Lord of the Rings. That he's not only because he's well, let's face it, old, white, bearded, <laughs> and a wizard. <laughs> um, so he basically um, so is he, Gandalf. Which is why I wanted Ian McKellen to pay, play him in a movie. But that's okay. yeah. Well, <laughs> you're, yeah, that would have been awesome. Um, but uh, the also the role that he plays, where you know he he isn't the main character, but he is is a mastermind. He's an orchestrator. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he knows more than you know, and mm-hmm. you know it. Um, and sometimes you're not comfortable with that. Yeah. Um, but as you move through the books with the characters, you realize you have to trust him more, and you do because that's the only way you're going to keep moving forward. I think we also see through McGonagall how much everyone implicitly trusts Dumbledore because of, you know, his his knowledge and his power and all of that. I, she said, or in her internal monologue, it says it was plain that what whatever everyone was saying, she was not going to believe it until Dumbledore told her it was true. Hmm. And I think that's... We see that with the with the big three, with Hermione and Ron and Harry, all the time. They're not going to believe whatever's going on. We have to ask Dumbledore first. We have to see what's what's really going on here. Mm-hmm. And everyone just always assumes that he has the answers, mm-hmm. that he knows everything. He's interpreting things rightly. Right. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't always do that. No. Right. And we even see it in this chapter. It's the best place for him, said Dumbledore firmly. His aunt and uncle will be able to explain everything to him when he's older. I've written them a letter. I think there, Rowling is introducing us to the fact that Dumbledore has this profound faith in humanity. And sometimes it borders on unrealistic optimism. Uh, maybe even being naive. Mm-hmm. For a man so wise... Um, he, he does hold out faith 
for people. He believes the best in people, um, even when that puts him and others in potentially sticky situations. Extremely life-threatening situations, like in every other book that... I also thought it... um, I wondered about that, because that always seemed weird to me. Like, if he was a wizard, and he was able to see the things that this family did, perhaps in contrast to other families, things like that. If he had heard anything from Lily and James for the past however many years that he had been friends with them, that perhaps he would have come away with a worse impression of the Dursleys than he seems to present. And I wondered if perhaps it was his own um, desire not to, not to believe the sort of terrible things that other wizards would say about muggles. It was his own sort of desire to not allow the prejudices of his culture in many ways to determine the way that he felt about a group of people mm. from a looked-down-upon group that actually prevented him from seeing when this group of muggles was not like a lot of other muggles. Mm. They actually aren't great people. Um, and it's not because they're muggles. They're just terrible people. Right. Like, <laughs> um, well, I think you know part of it, at least part of the reasoning, is you know we find out later that there's this protection set up for Harry mm-hmm. through Lily's bloodline that he can only get by going to Petunia's home every year and like refreshing it over the summer. And so I think in this beginning, Dumbledore knew that he he would be safest with family and not because of who they are, but because they're blood. And the magic runs through the blood to protect him. But but wasn't um, I mean Dumbledore's gone, right? Everybody's celebrating now. So why? Voldemort. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, I said Dumbledore. <laughs> Voldemort. I mean, if, if Voldemort's really gone, I mean, we say that you know, I guess Dumbledore doesn't really believe no, you know that doesn't. Voldemort's gone, um, and he, they don't. He doesn't really, I guess, express that here. Um, but it he he says it later on um, that he didn't think Voldemort was really truly mm-hmm. gone. Um, but like, why did you know? Why did he need to live there? Yeah. It it ends up being a a an important sort of under the surface reason for having Harry at the house. But it's not either of the reasons Dumbledore offers gives, here. Yeah. yeah, here it's this is the best place for him, and it'll be fine. I've written them a letter, um, <laughs> as if a a letter from a wizard is going to change Vernon and Petunia Dursley's mind. The other one. Uh, the other reason that he gives, it would be enough to turn any boy's head. Famous before he can walk and talk. Famous for something he won't even remember. Can't you see how much better off he'll be growing up away from all that until he's ready to take it? So the first reason, I think, introduces us to Dumbledore's um, profound faith in people. This, I think, introduces us to his tendency to see it as his job to protect Harry from himself. Mm. And to put him in, like, horribly dangerous situations and then trust, like, trust it to work out. Like, instead of coming in and saving the day, he's training Harry up for something. Because he does know the prophecy. Or, yes. 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 So, I mean, I think he sees, even though it looks like he's already fulfilled the the prophecy, if Dumbledore has an inkling that Voldemort could come back, he lets Harry go through these crazy traumatic things like child abuse. I think he could know it's bad because I just had on, on page 16, it's as they leave Harry, it says, and the twinkling light that usually shone from Dumbledore's eyes seemed to have gone out. 
-hmm. I think there is a sadness when he leaves Harry, not just because, oh, he's a little baby, but he's in for like a rough few years. Mm -hmm. I think that could be deliberate to humble him so that he has the humility and like the character to go through what he's going to have to go through. What's interesting to me is that Dumbledore, though, consistently sees it as his job to make sure that Harry does have those experiences. And I think the one of the clearest places we get that is really the entire tension of book five, mm. yeah. when Dumbledore essentially shuts out Harry. Mm -hmm. Harry is left angry, isolated, and afraid. Um, and only later do we come back to a similar explanation. I was trying to protect you. Um, so here it seems like yeah, it is going to have the intended effect. Harry will end up being a more profoundly humble person than he probably otherwise would have been, and yet that same tendency emerges later in Dumbledore and mm -hmm. causes conflict, um, maybe in ways that were avoidable. Yeah. My other, while we're talking about Dumbledore, I'm like, why the heck did he send Hagrid to get Harry? Why didn't he just hop over and get Harry? Because and why did he send him on a motorcycle? Yeah, I mean, I know Hagrid has, is Hagrid like yeah, nice and trustworthy, but he's also not the most reliable, you know, guy. Like he goes and gets illegal creatures, and he's doing all these things on the side. And I just think that's another example where Dumbledore very much empowers people around him to do things he could probably do in an instant way better, but he's. He trusts that it's all going to work out. Like, there's this understanding of fate or maybe prophecy that he's like, sure, I'll send Hagrid to go get the baby. Like, it seems like that's a communication issue because the instant they find out Lily and James are dead, someone needs to go get the baby. Why Why does he take the time to, like, call, contact Hagrid and send him? Why doesn't he go? Anyway. Was he busy? Was there anything? Is there any other explanation We're not for what that. he was doing with that yeah, time? Yeah, we're not told. I always think, because I've thought that too, I've wondered, like, why didn't Dumbledore just apparate over there yeah. and get Harry from the ruins? But you almost wonder, like, was he consulting with the Minister for Magic? You just, I mean, he's a really notable name, mm -hmm. so surely if Voldemort is gone, then he's surrounded by people who are asking him what happened, what happened. And, mm. But there are also plenty of times in the canon where we're asking, why did Dumbledore <laughs> not do something? Yeah. <laughs> like... And, if he just and, kept the Sorcerer's Stone in his pocket, like, it would never, it would be safe. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, why did he go and put it in this elaborate thing and then let this thing happen? Yeah, but, but we, we see him in, maybe this isn't the best way to put it, but maybe it is. Empowering other people mm -hmm. to be significant figures in this story that is unfolding. He does have the power and the knowledge, it seems, to affect a lot of change. And yet, he's often empowering here Hagrid, which is just a, a fraction of what he does with Ron, Harry, and Hermione. But it serves a huge purpose because of this. Hagrid has this bond because he met infant Harry. And so it's like almost that makes him then Harry's protector when Harry comes to Hogwarts. Again, I don't know how much Dumbledore was thinking into the future, but I think Hagrid... You know, he's crying to say goodbye to this baby mm -hmm. he just met. like he, Or maybe he'd met him before through Lily and James. Mm -hmm. But it does forge a bond. And Hagrid was orphaned, so that could be something that Dumbledore maybe even foresaw in their relationship was, I'll send 
Hagrid, and then he sends him later also to actually deliver his letter. So it could be that he knew this bond was going to be forged because Hagrid is probably the most sensitive and crybaby sort of character <laughs> yeah. that we see in the entire series. I mean, you love him for it, yeah. but I mean, it would have been really quickly quick for him to, I think, have forged that bond with Harry, and then it lasts, and then. Harry has someone tangible that he can always go to who's always accessible to him, whereas Dumbledore may not be yeah. while he's at Hogwarts. Well, and that brings us back to Alex's initial point, uh, Dumbledore as Gandalf, yeah. the, <laughs> the orchestrator of everything. Mm -hmm. And we, we do uh, end up often having discussions like this. As we ask questions of Dumbledore, we come to this conclusion and we see how he's arranging things. And we do get the feeling like he's a participant in the story, but he has a perspective on it that no one else has. And he's almost playing an elaborate chess game in it all. Perhaps not sure how it's all going to turn out, but he's more sure than we are. Mm -hmm. This is just a quick tangent, and, and just because uh, when I was reading this and I was thinking about the motorcycle that is Sirius Black's motorcycle, we find out in book three that... Everyone thinks that Sirius Black was the one that betrayed uh, Lily and James. So I was just curious at this point, you know, what, I mean, was this just an oversight? Was this just a small hole or is there something that can explain? Yeah, it, what, why it, was it? it forces us on a second reading to go back and say, okay, what's the timeline yeah. of events here? And what did they know? Yeah. Isn't it the same night that Sirius goes after Wormtail? Yes, and he's going actually to check on Harry. I think he's actually going. He's trying to get Hagrid, give me Harry. I want to protect him. So he's there. That's how Hagrid even gets the motorcycle. Is he's gone there to confront Pettigrew. He's gone there to get Harry and try and help him. So it's not a hole in the story, I don't think. I think she intentionally meant for us to go back and say, okay, connect those things. Because right. Sirius was there, and that's almost a foreshadowing of his innocence. He was there trying to care for Harry. Mm -hmm. And seek out Pettigrew and accuse him of what he knew to be true. But the way everyone sees it is he was there because he, he wanted to destroy him. Let, yeah, he let Voldemort in the front door. But at this point in the timeline of events, Hagrid can talk about Sirius Black lending the motorcycle. And it sounds perfectly normal because he has not yet gone after uh, Pettigrew Apparently. and been essentially framed for right. the, uh, all of those murders. All of the murders. I wish, I wish we had um, typed up, maybe somebody knows the ages, because I know Hagrid is like 65, 67 when Harry comes to Hogwarts, which means Voldemort's that old, which means how old is Dumbledore? Dumbledore <laughs> is, was born in 1881. Yeah, okay. He's 100 years old. Here. 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 Okay. Which, well. How do we know this, Andrew? Oh, it's published somewhere. It's published somewhere. Okay. 1881. Right. It's Pottermore, I think. Yeah, and, and there, there just, there's lots of helpful fan articles all over the internet. We, I think one thing that would be really fun, and I've already started doing this, is making our own timeline of events, oh cross-referencing wizarding history, because to me, we know, we know a lot about the years uh, 1981 to 1998, uh, and then what we get in the epilogue. What we don't know about is this fascinating history of the first Wizarding War, and then and even going go back further, movie. further back. Yeah. Uh, with Dumbledore's past, we're mm -hmm. given a glimpse of it, but then uh, Grindelwald and all that's happening there, and yet, yeah, so that makes next weekend <laughs> and uh, this new 
movie, which uh, I'm considering part of the Harry Potter canon, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, we're going back to the early 1900s, and I, I get the sneaking suspicion that we'll see some overlap with that murky but fascinating part of uh, wizarding history. Mm -hmm. So it'll be fun for us to sort of keep keep our own timelines, be be tracing ages, events, what leads up, where are we in sort of Rowling's wizarding history. And even where that lines up with like World War II and everything, I don't know, I just think it'd be interesting to put the two side by side major historical events yeah. in mm -hmm. our muggle world. Mm -hmm. Agreed, agreed. And then you get to, well, in the future, we can, if you include Cursed Child, we get to really go out. This can go on our podcast website. <laughs> I, <laughs> Whenever we want. I wanted to, to mention, I mean, we've talked a lot about the two worlds that uh, are mentioned in this book. And I like how she makes it, I mean, because this was a children's book, um, she makes it seem like it could be possible. You know, I mean... She makes it seem like, well, the muggle world doesn't quite know about us. We know about them, but but maybe, you know, it's just possible to a child's imagination that this is something real. Like there's something you can touch um, to this wizarding world that we don't quite know at this point in the story what it is. We've only gotten small little glimpses into it, but I mean, just that it, it's possible. It could be real because... You know, they're keeping it away. You know, I mean, obviously there there's a huge celebration because you know who Voldemort has disappeared. He's vanquished. He's apparently defeated. And so everyone's celebrating, which is spilling over into the muggle world. And even they're noticing that yeah. so something's happening around here. Um, yeah. And so I, I just thought it was really neat to, to see that, you know, in the children's mm -hmm. book. Yeah, almost an invitation. Children, keep your eyes open. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. there is there is magic about, which I do think is one of the phenomenal things about fantasy in general, is that it is an implicit rebuke of the modern worldview that um, brings everything onto this disenchanted, natural level um, and it says no there there is hope there is purpose there is power magic uh, in the universe um, and it sort of lifts our eyes from the triviality of modern existence and re-enchants the world um, and I think that's it's a beautiful thing, not only for children, but also for adults. Maybe that's why we're still addicted to it, is because mm -hmm. um, this is the kind of world we want to live in. A world that is more than what modern American existence says that it is. I love the little snippets, too, throughout the series where she makes references to the ways that, like, muggles refuse to acknowledge magic, you know, like their keys disappear and they're like, oh, I've lost my keys. But really it's these people who are anti-muggle going around and performing <laughs> spells on their keys to make them shrink and shrink and shrink until they disappear. So there are all these like fun little ways you're like, I wonder if I lost my keys. I wonder if some person who hates muggles is out here like tormenting me with how many times I lose my keys in a day. I think that's fun. And don't they, in like book five, there's the flushing toilets incident. Yeah. yeah. Um, where people are like cursing muggle toilets to act <laughs> to overflow, out. Yeah. yeah. Regurgitating toilets. Yeah, yeah. regurgitating <laughs> toilets. That was so, so great. 
Oh, this is why we need plumbers. <laughs> this this is a quick tangent, but um, when we went to see the BFG recently, I saw it with my mom and came home, and then Trevor and my mom and I stayed up and like had this long, in-depth conversation about British fantasy, and there's something distinctly British about what she's doing here that in America we write like how Huck Finn, and they're like real children's stories that are based in reality. In Britain, you have Roald Dahl, you know, P.L. Travers, Mary Poppins, C.S. Lewis. I can't think of, you know, Alice in Wonderland. It's like if you think of any epic fantasy about the orphan child or the Peter outcast Pan. child, Peter Pan. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know there's more, but that they, um, the Brits are just so good at these fantasy worlds, and the, I just think it's important for children. And sometimes Americans, and again, there was, I read some article, it was like, it's our Protestant work ethic, like everything has to have a moral and a really clear moral to it. But actually there's something more compelling and powerful about fantasy and good versus evil sometimes than like the moral American Little House on the Prairie, even, even though I love Little House on the Prairie. Well, yeah. but it, it says things, I think, that just reality, I mean, if you're trying to write just so realistic, it can't say, you know, it says things to us in more of a subjective way, I think, that it just, realistic, you know, literature just doesn't get to it, I mean, as, as fantasy does. Looking back at the Dursley household, mm -hmm. uh, Syl, you made the point that the Dursleys are basically guilty of child abuse, and that this is an extraordinary vice. And as, as we look at it, we say, yes, that is, that, that is dramatic. But as I've been sitting here thinking, um, I actually think, in one, in one sense, it's not. Because we, we know that sort of this dramatic wickedness that uh, the Dursleys are, are guilty of actually emerges from that same seed of fear, insecurity, anxiety, and self-protection. So, I agree with you that it is, it's an extraordinary vice, and yet it grows up out of that, that ordinary vice. And I think it, it gives us this perspective that um, maybe even the, the wicked things around us have these very mundane beginnings in people, as we, as we look at ourselves. The most damaging parts of our lives as well often grow up out of these seeds of things that are allowed to sprout and grow and blossom in terrible ways. So I was, I was thinking about that. And again, thinking about what that says about ourselves. But that also puts us back in the Dursley household. And maybe the last character that we meet and that we haven't talked about yet is good old Dudley. <laughs> <laughs> what are your impressions of Dudley Dursley in chapter one? I think he immediately um, strikes me as like the foil of Harry. And I love that we hear Dumbledore saying in, at the end of chapter one that, you know, this fame would turn any boy's head. So what he's doing is, I mean, we know at the end he's protecting Harry by putting him in the bloodline of his mom's family. But what he's saying is, I'm protecting him from this power that he would get from being loved and adored. And so with Dudley, I think we see what that looks like in real life. It's who Harry would be had he actually been maybe given to a muggle family. He's this, he is, you know, his first words are like, won't, no, no thing. <laughs> he kicks and screams and pinches Harry within the first week that he's there. Mm -hmm. And you just immediately see him as this spoiled, rotten kid who 
it's almost like they're pointingly pointing out to you like Harry yeah he's in this incredibly abusive house and I have all kinds of you know, things I want to say to Dumbledore about that but at the same time he's being protected from another kind of rottenness really mm -hmm. Mm. well you were saying um, Trevor reminded me of the phrase the banality of evil mm -hmm. which is often associated mm -hmm. with the Nuremberg trials um, but there was a there was a study the I know it's called like the Stanford prison experiment mm -hmm. where basically normal college kids are put into an environment where they're given a certain role either as a prisoner or as a guard and within a few weeks or within a few days I believe it was um, the like psychological disposition of these students which was tested as entirely normal when the experiment started became horrific I mean they within days they, the the people that were assigned to the position of guards were abusing the people that were in the position of prisoners even though these were assigned at random and everyone knew it was an experiment I, and, I know oh, sorry I was gonna say I know they had to shut it down yes, way early I think I it mean, was just because of how brutal it had gotten so quickly I think it was I think it lasted three days yeah. and it was supposed to be a three-week experiment yeah. um, and you know he wrote books and books and did other types of similar experiments to to help understand these causes better but I, when I saw how when I read about how Dudley was treating Harry and how okay it seemed to be you know it's it made me think of this experiment like well what you know what would it have been like not to have had this as a three-day experiment where you're just able to treat another person like this for a couple days, but how that must have twisted his development from when he was an infant. I mean, from the moment this other boy walked into the house, he had something that he could kick and scratch mm. and beat up, and no one seemed to care. In fact, I bet it was often encouraged. I'm sure. Um, because Harry was a bad child because exactly. he had those magic tendencies. And he had right. messy hair. And... Right. Yeah. But the Dursley household with, I, I think that's fascinating, the social dynamics and the formation and the rearrangement of what normal good behavior is, that's a microcosm of the wizarding world. Not only under Voldemort's reign of terror, where it is acceptable to uh, hate muggles and mistreat them. And you get this idea, as we're introduced to what happened in the First Wizarding War, that normal, upstanding, decent wizards were sort of sucked into that way of being. Um, but we also see it in the wizarding regime that exists here that Hermione will very gladly point out with the way elves are the appropriate object of derision. Goblins are okay to disrespect. Giants still have a stigma attached to them. Centaurs? Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. I, I think, yeah, what's happening in the Dursley house, the banality of evil and the formation that's going on there, um is really a small glimpse of what we're going to see emerging in the entire wizarding world. It is surprising, though, that Harry, like, isn't more 
of like traumatized because I mean it's even a very decent as well adjusted person. Yeah, yeah. He, should, he should not be as adjusted no. as he is. Um maybe his one year with his parents was okay, but like if a child doesn't have a parent who smiles at them, like and you only get a scowl, like just psychologically, you know, there's all these psychology studies, like that's a form of abuse. If and you know, his parent Fernand and Dursley didn't smile at little baby Harry and oh, you know, like he probably just got scowls and that's a side it's, note, and we'll it, give her a creative license. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just along with that, it's, I mean, you, you think he would grow up to be Severus Snape or something like that. Well, I mean, yeah, just, like nervous I, I and shifty. So, yeah, this is a place where we have to suspend disbelief because, because we know it's the same how tradition traumatic. of Matilda, the mm-hmm. abuse. Yeah, right. um, but it, it's, it also goes Alice, back, right? Alice in Wonderland. Sure, she escapes yeah. to Wonderland because she's ignored. She's not attention to and, and it takes us back to that observation before um that the dursley's abusive behavior in Rowling's narrative world isn't at the same level almost it, it doesn't have the same effects in harry as we would expect the same kind of abusive behavior to have have in our own world it's the sort of thing that we read about and we would cry if we saw that in the newspaper or on TV. Mm-hmm. But in Rowling's world, Harry emerges okay. And you kind of laugh at it. We, yeah. it, so, it is almost funny because we see Harry as this resilient figure who can sort of take and shrug off the r- ridiculousness of the abuse that's hurled at him. So this story, that I love this because this was like my first encounter with Harry Potter. My grandma um, was had heard about it because she was always reading about books. And so she bought a copy and was lending it to different grandchildren. And my older brother was reading it when the first one was the only one out. And, um, or at least in America. And he, he was telling me, it's this book and this boy gets like 37 birthday gifts. And then he's complaining or he gets 32 and he's so mad because he had more last year. And he was just like, that's so ridiculous. Cause you know, we get like four birthday gifts. And so, but I just remember him telling me how like ridiculous and crazy and kind of funny it was, how spoiled this child was. And that intrigued me to then when my brother was done, want to read Harry Potter, but I don't know. It, it does almost have like a light comedic, tone it's not like really heavy abusive writing or anything so even though it could be that that sort of brings us back to what Rowling is doing with the character of Dudley Hmm. in 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 some sense Dudley is easy to hate especially later on in in the stories but he is the product of the home that he lives in in a lot of and and the type of parenting uh, the Dursleys do and I think, I wonder if for Rowling, Dudley is the archetypal modern child. Like, Dudley is the child she passes in the grocery store, like, freaking out because, <laughs> you know, they can't get $100 worth of candy mm-hmm. at the grocery trip. And there's this statement where, um, just in passing, uh, Rowling tells us, Dudley was now having a tantrum and throwing his cereal at the walls. Little tyke chortled Mr. Dursley as he left the house. He gets into his car and goes to work. Right. Um, and, and it's almost this idea like this, this is normal. Uh, you, don't, you don't bat an eye at it. This is the way we idolize and exalt children uh, oftentimes in modern life. They become 
uh, the embodiment of all of our hopes, dreams, and ambitions. We believe that they cannot do anything wrong, and we end up ruining them yeah. <laughs> as people. Uh, it's it's really interesting, and I, I'm just curious how much social commentary Rowling is trying to put in the first couple pages here with the character of Dudley. And I think she even revisits that in book seven when Harry, or sorry, book six when Dumbledore comes to pick Harry up. And she says, you know, all I ask you to do was take him in and love him like your own. And, you know, the only thing I can say about your treatment for him was that you spared him the treatment that Dudley received. And mm. Dudley's sitting there like, what are they talking about? I've never <laughs> been mistreated. But Dumbledore is smart enough to see, like, how, you know, though Harry, again, was definitely being abused. I completely agree with you on that, mm -hmm. Sylvia. But at the same time, he was saved this spoiled rottenness that yeah. that it can't function in normal society. Harry is resilient, and he's got these defense mechanisms that make him likable. He's funny. He's got all of these things about him that you love. And Dudley has nothing that you like about him. Mm -hmm. I mean, he does have some redemption in the end, thank goodness. Sure. But there, you don't like him. You never like him. Even in the last, I think even in the last book, you have trouble liking him because of the way he's treated Harry. Mm -hmm. So he was saved. I mean, I think Harry was spared that kind of... Yeah, I'd certainly I agree that I I completely agree with you. I think this is a comment on modern society, and I think we are supposed to draw the contrast between the fragile Dudley and the resilient Harry. Mm. Mm. And the pathetic Dudley. I mean, yeah. jumping ahead when he's stealing Harry's birthday cake. Mm. I mean, it's <laughs> pathetic. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's just, he's just, I, I mean, I think, I don't think I pitied him the first time I read this, like I hated him, but now I just have sadness when I think of Dudley, because yeah. it's just like, pitiful. Yeah, mm -hmm. but of course, art articles have, have been written uh, by psychologists uh, mapping out modern parenting techniques of basically doing what the Dursleys do uh, with Dudley um, and parenting him as this exalted child figure, uh, and psychologists finding that the result is increased fragility, a lack of resilience, and a total inability to live in the real world. In addition to the narcissism and the anxiety. And the, yeah. bullying. the bullying. Yeah. So, so the consumerism. Even, even though yeah. this is fantasy fiction, but in some sense, I mean, it's profoundly realistic. Mm -hmm. It's just slightly caricatured. Slightly easier to see. You know, Petunia has the long neck so that she can peer over garden fences. <laughs> and, um, you know, Dudley is uh, extravagantly spoiled. But if you take away the caricature details, it's profoundly realistic people inhabit the pages of this narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, people that we see ourselves in, we see our culture, our society in. Um, and ultimately, Rowling is giving us this implicit call um, to either pursue or avoid certain things with the characters uh, that she's presenting us with. Fascinating stuff. I don't know about you all, but I just think of Harry when he first arrived on this doorstep and like, you know, having come from Lily and James where he was loved and cared for, can you not just see him like smiling and giggling up at Petunia and her just like snubbing him and like she how screams. Yeah, like I mean he probably she screams, but, she but even her. over like the next week he probably is like, Oh, new people to hang out with yeah. and play with because he's one. So you mm. think he's probably just so happy and he gets like snubbed. At what point did he start 
like giving up on like it is heartbreaking yeah, for me to is. think about mm-hmm. that. Like, at what point did he stop smiling at them and playing with them and just realize like, oh, this is life now. And I think that's why we get so little of that in between because it would be so heartbreaking to read. Yeah. And it's just too much for a kid. And we know? revisit that, yeah, in book three when Aunt Marge is there. or No, sorry, it's um, book five when he's doing Occlumency with Snape. And he's, mm-hmm. he's like, thinking about being, like, watching Dudley on his racing bike and his mm-hmm. heart's burning with jealousy. That is so heartbreaking because you see those, like, snippets of mm-hmm. in-between that we miss where he's just a kid who wants to be loved and cared for, and he's not. Mm-hmm. He's a slave. Yeah. Yeah. And this this last paragraph I just think is so beautiful. And I don't again, maybe mm-hmm. I'll read through it and there's a lot more of these than I think, but I don't I feel like this is a different style and a different tone than how she writes a lot. But mm-hmm. just the description of like precious little Harry Potter mm-hmm. rolling over in his blankets without waking up, one small hand closed on the letter beside him and he slept on, not knowing he was special, not knowing he was famous. You know, just like rolling over in his little blankets alone on a doorstep. It's just a very beautiful, um, final image and and just this whole the whole rhythm of the sentences in this last paragraph yeah. it sets you it up builds. for his innocence and his goodness i think because mm-hmm. ultimately i think that's how he's portrayed even dumbledore says how many people could have looked into the mirror of Ariset and, and saw what and saw what you saw nobody could have done mm-hmm. that there's so few and this last line of chapter one to harry potter the boy who lived where they're toasting him even this whole last sentence it could be then taken to the end of book mm-hmm. seven yeah. and mm-hmm. boom, put it in. It's just as good of a last sentence and it's yeah. just as true yeah. and accurate. The boy who, that's a line that resonates throughout mm-hmm. the narrative. I, I'm, I'm with you. I, one of the things that just struck me over and over in chapter one was that the tone of writing was so unique mm-hmm. in comparison to the rest of the story. Uh, we, I mean, we're almost in Vernon Dursley's head. Mm -hmm. Like, the narrator gives us his exclamations, but they're not in quotations. We're encountering things with him. We're being introduced to uh, these wizards celebrating and and these oddities that are happening all around. And we begin, you know, with the, the first paragraph that addresses us as readers, and then it happens again in the last paragraph. I think... The first chapter of the first book of sort of an epic saga like this one is in many ways the most important. Um, It has to grab us. It has to give us a feel for the universe that we're getting ready to enter into. And I think Rowling absolutely nails it. Mm -hmm. But because this is in many ways an exposition chapter... It's a setting up chapter. Um, it allows her, it's it's more appropriate for her to use this unique tone here than in anywhere else. Uh, because once, once we get past chapter one and that reflective final paragraph, which you could have ended the chapter before that. You could have ended the chapter with, a swish of his cloak, and he was gone. Mm-hmm. With Dumbledore leaving the scene, it would have been perfect. But to add one more paragraph where the narrator is tugging at your heartstrings mm-hmm. to empathize with Harry, um, it's a beautiful way to end this period of Harry's life before jumping into all of the action that, that begins with chapter two. 
For next time. For next time. I have, uh, if we're wrapping up, I just can't help, and this is this has been said before, but I think it's so great, is on page 13 when it says, there will be books written about Harry. Every child in our world will know his name. I love reading that in the vein of like our real world yeah. because um, I was just reminded today she gets like 12 rejection letters or 13, however many, from publishers. One publisher finally get, accepts it. They print 500 copies only, 300 are to be donated to public libraries. There are only going to be 200 copies of this book out. They're like, keep your day job. This is going to go, this is not going to make you any money. You, you know, this is not, there's not a big audience for this. And that's what they tell her with book one and print 500 little copies and only 200 are for the public. And then every child in the world knows his name. I just think that's so cool. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll close chapter one without discussing how Dumbledore can apparate silently. <laughs> yes. What? What? Oh, I thought about that again today. We won't. Poke holes in some of the plot details. He's Dumbledore. He's Dumbledore. Magic. Though. He's okay. Dumbledore. <laughs> Explanation. He's just Dumbledore. He's, he's Dumbledore. We can say that. All right. Every uh, little thing he does is magic. Well, with our next meeting, we'll aim uh, to be prepared to discuss chapters two and three. If you stuck through with us to the very end, dear listener, uh, take some time to read chapters two and three of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Tell your friends about this podcast, get them to listen to it, and perhaps even start a book club of your own, because I don't know about you guys, this was like the fulfillment of all my wildest dreams. <laughs> Dang, so Ditto. great. All right. And we, and we are drinking butterbeer, except <laughs> me, because... Yeah, the I'm buzz, the buzz of but... coffee's caffeine and the sugar in butterbeer is making me a bit jittery. <laughs> but until next time. To Harry Potter, the boy who lived. Ding, ding. That sounds like a good way to end every episode.